Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of the Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, serial entrepreneur and consultant, uh, consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. We just passed, again, our one-year anniversary, and this is my 61st interview, and we have listeners now from 38 countries. I'm excited very day to have the author of Shifting Ahead, Alan Adamson. Alan, welcome. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you. So, Alan, uh, please tell us about your background. Um, I, uh, after school, started in marketing, uh, working in the advertising business. Went over to Unilever for many years, worrying about uh, soap and skin. Good place to learn marketing because despite what I tried to tell you back then, there's not that much difference between one soap and another. And um, after that, went back to advertising and ultimately uh, did a lot of work uh, at Landor, which is a global brand consultancy. And the company that you run now? Is Metaforce. We're sort of the special forces of marketing, helping clients try to figure out if they could do one thing, what's that one thing they should do, and then how do they do it really well? Yeah, I, and I like the website and I see the, was it a helicopter, I think? Dropping off special forces people. You don't have to do client engagements dropping onto your site with a helicopter anymore, thanks to Zoom. <laughs> um, so why did you write this book and why this particular title? It came out of many clients uh, coming to me and saying, you know, our sales are dropping. Um, can you help us attract new customers? And what became clear was that it wasn't a marketing problem. They had become less than relevant. <laughs> the product was no longer that good. The service was no longer that good. Uh, and I was wondering, you know, why more and more clients didn't realize they were becoming irrelevant before it was too late? Was it just me that more and more clients were coming to and saying, we need some new marketing, some sizzle, uh, when they were becoming your father's Oldsmobile? Or was it increasingly happening that companies were struggling to shift ahead? So, which is why uh, we set off on a journey with my partner at NYU to do the research. Yeah, I, I, I love the book. I thought it was very interesting. And, and, and there's a lot of companies who are the walking dead. Even if they're multi-billion dollar companies, they're still surviving for some particular reason, but they're not uh, taking off and getting to that uh, next level again. So what are the three things you'd like people who buy this book to walk away with? That is usually um, not one thing that's making you fall behind. It's very hard to keep up human nature. We talk a little bit in the book about the old TV show, Frasier, and Frasier's dad is in the old comforter And just realizing that most, most people, most business people are more comfortable doing what they did yesterday than changing for tomorrow. Um, that uh, change is uh, hard to do. Um, that you need to start earlier <laughs> and not wait till the sky is falling. Uh, and that change requires to be, for you to be true to yourself. If, if you're not funny, but you want to become a funny company, buying a book on how to tell a joke won't necessarily get you there in 30 days. 
Uh, no question. What's your definition of relevant? Uh, do, do your customers care about you? Um, you know, do I care? You know, we uh, we were doing a piece of research a couple of years back for Pizza Hut. And, you know, what do you want in a pizza and what's important? And one of the uh, moderators asked the question, well, if Pizza Hut went away, how would you feel? What would you do? And they go, oh, no big deal. I just go to Domino's. I just go. So there was no more. I cared about Pizza Hut. They, was, they were fine. They were convenient. People were in a habit of using them. But the I care and it was really relevant to me was really evaporating. And so that was a far more serious problem, whether they should put one cheese or the other on the next one pizza. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's funny, you know, because you had good examples about Domino's and what they were able to do there turn themselves around to make themselves relevant, but it comes down to having a, a quality product that people care about at the end of the day. Yeah, in Domino's case, they, they were so worried about speed of delivery, they lost focus on a table steak, which is if the pizza tastes like cardboard, it doesn't matter how fast you get it to someone's house. So they had to go back and say, step one, before we worry about all the bells and whistles is to, do people find our product different and do they care about it? That's yeah, for sure. Uh, what companies managed to stay relevant for 25 years or longer that you were in, you've been impressed with? You know, there are fewer of them every year because you know, every year you open up the, um, the the news and there's another iconic brand vaporizing. Um, and not to be too self-serving, but I do think Unilever and Dove Soap is a pretty good example. I had the privilege of working on it early in my career. And it was very different marketing Dove Bar Soap back in the Mad Men days when I did it. But they are still a relevant, huge global brand. The product is still good, but they found new ways to, to make you care about it uh, by presenting themselves as a little bit beyond just will make your skin pretty. Yeah, somehow cereals managed to do that quite well. Like people still eating Captain Crunch and Lucky Charms, uh, no matter how bad it is for you. I'm one of those people that likes those particular products, but they're also organizations like JP Morgan, who've been around over a hundred years, that they still manage to stay relevant uh, for that, for all, such a long period of time. Why do you think Sears, Howard Johnson's and, and great interviewers like Phil Donahue have disappeared and what could they have done differently based on your research? Well, there's never one reason that causes you to become a Sears or a Howard Johnson. It's usually a, you know, combination of uh, things. But with those companies in particular, by the time they decided they needed to change and realized that it just wasn't one bad quarter, um, it was too late. They were already bleeding money. You know, part of what you need to do to change is it, it requires investment. And if your sales are dropping like a stone, if you wait for sales to drop, you're not going to have the money to invest in something new the time, uh, and also what's going out the door, which most people don't talk about at a company like Sears or Howard Johnson, we'll get to Phil Donahue in a second, um, is that talent is leaving the company. Long before sales goes, the best talent says, this company's not growing, it's not interesting, they're doing the same old thing, they're not interested in trying new things, I'm leaving. So a, a big problem for companies is the talent that has the energy to change them runs before the dollars run out, but the combination of lack of talent and lack of money make those situations difficult. You know, Phil Donahue, I, I'm not, uh, I remember a bit of him. You know, he had a phenomenally successful career when he was on his own every day worrying about it. When he went 
to the next level. I think he became more concerned with his brand and less concerned with what the what listeners and viewers wanted to hear about. We, we have a fair number of people who are consultants that listen to the show, and I being also one of them. How do you stay relevant? How did you personally stay relevant? And how do uh, individuals stay relevant, especially as you get older? Because I'm 60, and I, one of the things I did to stay relevant was create this podcast uh, and learn a new, uh, um, a new technology and new medium and so forth. And that's worked out pretty well for me. But you've had a very, very fantastic career. And here you started this other company. How do you stay relevant where people still want to go and hire you? Um, great question, Mark. You know, I think I'll start off with a similar answer to what you just said, that one of the reasons I first wrote my first book um, many years ago called Brand Simple, uh, it's, and when you write a business book, as you and your listeners know, it's not just sitting at the beach, looking at the ocean and making things up. Uh, we had the opportunity to speak to lots of companies and lots of brands. And doing the interviews and for Shift Ahead, we spoke to you know 50 senior executives, 80 companies we looked at, did a lot of, that's you know, a year of learning, a year of not just telling people, here's what I can do for you, a year of listening to business leaders tell you what their pain points are, how they're going about changing it, who's working and who's not. And you actually, you learn as much from the huge success of Peloton as you do from talking about a Xerox or a Kodak or uh, a company that's vaporizing in front of you. So actually looking at both failures and success and taking a year sabbatical, I didn't take a sabbatical because I was working at the time, um, but using that time to look up from your screen and start listening and pretend you're back in school because what we learned back in business school, uh, some of it's still relevant, but the world's the pace of change is so fast that, as everyone knows, if you're not learning every day, you're falling behind. No, I, I agree with you totally. I think you got to think you're 35 forever and and engaged. You know, you already have some experience at 35, but if you keep staying engaged, it makes a big difference. And we see that all the time where companies who were high flyers, and you mentioned quite a few of them, like BlackBerry, and we're going to talk more about that as we go forward here. You write about authenticity and the importance of it today. What companies have and are doing it well, and does that affect sales and the value of the company? Um, typically, um, and today more than ever, it used to be when consumers, you mentioned cereals, picked up a box of cereals, all they knew about the cereal was on the front of the box, and that was it. Oh, maybe they watched a commercial. And then, now, when consumers are considering, do they buy this, this cereal or that cereal or this soap or that soap or this piece of clothing or that, they, like everyone else, can see everything. Everyone is transparent and you can see what a company's doing, how they're treating their employees. Um, and so the purchase decision is moving from, is this taste 10% better? Maybe not, but that company is doing a lot of the right things and I like what they're doing, and I want to, I want to support them. I mean, Patagonia is a perfect example of a clothing company that you know it's hard for me when I'm in the rain to tell the difference between one windbreaker and the next. They're all pretty good, but Patagonia and what they stand for and sustainability makes me want to buy the Patagonia rain rain slicker more than the other brand. So authenticity and standing for something beyond perhaps a product has become a driving force. 
Yeah, I, I, I think so as well. What do you mean in the book by meaningful difference and who does that well? Um, so everyone knows that, you know, you, you buy one coffee or the next or one phone event because it, it's, it's in your judgment better. And better means it's different in a way that's meaningful to you. So uh, to me, it's, it has a difference. And do I care about it? Now for Patagonia, let's just go back to that. If I see their differences mainly that they are a incredible corporate citizen and give back and treat their employee. But if I don't care about any of that, I just want the cheapest jacket that's going to keep me dry. And that's what matters to me. I may not buy a Patagonia. I may buy a brand I've never heard of because it's on sale and it looks good enough. So relevance is about, does that difference that the marketer is talking about matter to me? And most often, Companies get in trouble for two reasons. One, their difference evaporates. I can't tell the difference between one coffee and the next or one app and the next. And the other is the difference is there, but I don't care about it. You know, the fact that the phone folds in half, that's a cool difference, but not that relevant to me. I don't think I'll ever be folding my phone in half. Um, one of the uh, audience wants to ask, I'm always curious how authors get in the door with all these big companies to do the research. How did you do it? Well, there, uh, there's no, I don't think there's a formula. One thing is, is true that if, if you call up, if I call up Mark and I say, Mark, can you tell me about your podcast and how you thought of it? You're more likely to want to talk about yourself and your business and your podcast. Uh, and you're usually more than happy to share that. The other connection of, of being affiliated, my partner was a professor at NYU. I, I lecture there quite often. But having the benefit of NYU it enhances most people's interest in talking because uh, it's about learning and sharing knowledge. And uh, if I can do that and help a, a fellow business person, I'm open to do it. So I found that if you go in with that, I want to learn about what you've done uh, and see if others can learn. Tell me about it. More people than you think are usually open to talking to you. Yeah. And I also think the school does make a difference. I taught 10 years at Wharton and I wrote six books and saying that I taught at the Wharton school opened a lot of doors uh, for me. But you're right about people like to tell their story and are more than glad to share. If you're not looking for money from them and you're not looking for a job or something or a contract, they like to share their experiences. And the challenge, as you know, is, is to help them tell their story in a way that can help more people than the person in the soup business who tells you about how they make great soup. Yeah, no, no question about it. Could you please talk about uh, the measure that Young and Ram, Ruben Kim uh, created called Brand Asset Val, uh, Valuator? And how does that work? And can that be used for local or regional brands? Or is it only for really for big companies? That was a great piece of research. And it grew out of um, Early on at the company I was with, uh, which was part of the Young Rubicon group called Landor, we would do a study that looked at a couple dimensions, and it was able to look at one brand in financial services and compare it to a beverage brand. Most of the time, Coke knows what Pepsi's doing, and American Express knows what Visa's doing, but most people don't see the entire brandscape. And so what YNR did with the brand as evaluator back then was to look at all brands from financial service and compare them all horizontally and look at four dimensions. How different is the brand? How relevant is that difference? How well regarded is the brand? And how knowledgeable are consumers? And they looked at that 
for all brands quantitatively globally. And those dimensions proved a really good ability because lots of brands fell into, I know a lot about them, but I don't think they're relevant anymore. I don't think they're that different, so I don't buy them. And lots of marketers were very focused on, oh, look at me, tell, you know, we need awareness and we need to build our, uh, people need to know who Citibank is. And, but it turns out that everyone knows who Citibank is. They're just not that interested in what the difference is. So it was a really good measure of brands. And I think those brand, those metrics, difference, relevance, esteem, and knowledge can be applied to, yes, Pepsi and Coke and Pampers, but they can apply to Willie's Donut Shop at the corner. Because if you have a donut shop, you should be thinking about how am I different to my customers? Do they think that difference matters to them? Do they think I am producing a quality product? And how much do they know about my donut shop? And if you think about that, it could be your problem is, you know, you do great donuts. People care about it. They think, you know, but they don't know about you. So then maybe you you do balloons in front of the store to, to say, hey, look at me. I've got a great donut shop. But looking at those variables can help any marketer, be you, be it a small marketer or a global marketer. Was there anybody that significantly changed the way they operate based on the Young and Rubicam? I think so, because I think the instinct for lots of smaller companies is the, you know, just let's let's put our let's sponsor something, let's put our logo at a stadium, let's give out t-shirt, let's do some advertising in a jingle that says, you know, remember me, I'm, I'm this company. And sometimes that's the issue, but lots of times awareness is not the problem. It's that the message you're sending, your product, your service is not different enough or the difference is not big enough that people care. Yeah, I, yeah. And we've seen a lot of the uh, mobile phone companies basically disappear. Essentially, you have two brands to choose from. It's right, Samsung. It's a big example. They're talking yeah. about the pixels and the screen. And, and ultimately, you, you look at, they're all a sea of similarity. And, you know, if one phone lasts four minutes more in battery life, that di- that's a difference. But does it really matter as much as, you know, being able to go to a genius bar and have somebody help you with the phone? Probably not. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, what are the two red, uh, red flags you mentioned in the book and why don't companies and or board members see it and make the appropriate adjustments? Talk about those red flags. Well, the first one is your problems often start well before sales go down. And most companies still use sales. They don't, they don't worry about it. If sales are okay, no one really, that's fine, let's do it again. There is an autopilot mentality that if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If sales are pretty good, that, that's fine. As, but as most of your listeners, and of course, you know, sales is a lagging indicator that by the time somebody stops buying your product, they've already decided you're not that different, the quality is bad, and then getting them back is really hard. So sales is an incredibly lagging indicator, yet most businesses don't really do anything um, until sales start dropping. And as I said earlier in our conversation, by then, you're ready, your, your, your bank account is under pressure. Lots of your best talent is out the door, it's too late. The other red flag um, is, is sort of tied to that, which, it, which are, it's, I call them the golden handcuffs. For many public companies, what's most important is delivering a profit that quarter. And what the golden handcuffs do is keep you very focused on the short term, 
and folk put, for, force you to put your money in your most profitable products. So while if you're Xerox in the olden days, copiers were your most powerful, profitable product, you were putting all your money in copiers. The fact that your research people told you that copiers are going to go away and people are going to be emailing documents, eh, that's tomorrow. <laughs> you know, um, and, but for sure, if you took money out of the copier business and put it in a digital business, the only thing for sure is you would make less money in the short term. Yeah, I, as I wondered when you looked at these and some other brands, you wrote a lot about Kodak. Um, Yahoo is a brand that was super powerful, but is irrelevant today. Columbia Records, which had the, you know, you could get 10 records for a dollar and then you were buying records all the time. They had millions of subscribers and they ceased to exist. Why didn't they make the uh, changeover to selling online? What, what happened to these companies? Yeah, to some extent, you know, again, it's never just one thing, but often they viewed themselves in, of course, a very famous uh, Harvard Business School marketing myopia. They saw themselves in the record subscription business, not the entertainment subscription business. Or Sears saw themselves in the retailing business, not the direct-to-consumer business. So step one is to zoom out a bit and make sure you know what's happening. Because if you're very zoomed in, you don't see what's going on around you. So being myopic and not pulling your head out uh, is, a, is a common trait among those things. And you, you even mentioned about the railroads not realizing they were in the transportation business and thinking, and you also always heard people say, I'm a railroad man. The, you know, EO, the people who work there. They never thought of themselves as transportation. Exactly. And the same, I think the same thing is happening right now in television. You know, I'm in the cable business. Well, cable is, whether it's gone today or gone tomorrow, it's gone. Yeah. Uh, so now everyone's going, um, do you want to subscribe to my network? So they're all becoming Columbia Records. But, you know, we could have a long discussion, but they're probably in the content creation business because you're not going to subscribe to a record or a newspaper or, or a entertainment channel unless there's great content there and consistently great content. No, you're right. And then they don't think about that. You mentioned about the concept of um, sunk cost fallacy. What What is that? And please provide some examples. Yeah, it's the human nature to, um, to invest in what you've been doing. Um, you know, just because we built a big plant that can make film it, it, human nature is that the first thing you're going to think about is how do I keep that plant going? Not whether, gee, there's going to be a better market in digital, so I should probably close the plant. So like the gambler in Vegas, I talk about, you know, whether you've, if you've lost a lot of money, you know, keeping that in mind and trying to bet twice as much doesn't improve your chances of getting out of the hole. And like so many companies, if you've built this whole organization that knows how to make copiers or how to make film or how to print newspapers, it's really hard to look at things with fresh eyes and say, if I were going to start this business over again, would I build a printing plant? Would I build copiers? Would I build a film plant? And of course, the answer is always no. But once you're on top of that mountain and you built a culture of people knowing how to run that engine, it's really hard. It's, it's what's happening in the car business right now. We can all see it. 
everyone's talking about let's go build electric cars or making some nice ads, but company the company is all built around still the internal combustion engine. That's how they know how to do it. They know how to sell it through dealers, not direct. So they are ripe, all of them, to be get nipped by Tesla or Carvana, uh, because they're really good at doing what they grew up doing. They're not in the business of reinventing themselves very well. Yeah, and I think they're also afraid of, uh, you know, getting the timing right. You know, when do I exactly make that uh, changeover? Because I'm still, like you said, the sales are way ahead of what's making the changes. I mean, if you look at Elon Musk and what he's done with Tesla, he's worth more than two of the car companies combined. And he's only selling a fraction of the number of cars. And it's all based because, you know, you have to look at it and say, would I invest in this business tomorrow? Not can I recapture my investment back to your son cost question from before. But I, I, I think that is, you know, ultimately the, the driver. Uh, lots of these companies grew up one way. And that's how they're, and, you know, and, and actually the more successful they are at that business, the more the process becomes ingrained, the more they hire people that are great at selling to retailers and doing business a certain way. And the bigger you get, do optimizing your game, the harder it is to throw up your hands and leave the field. Do you see a, a difference between private equity? Maybe they have a more longer term approach than uh, companies, you know, than uh, money managers who are buying and selling stocks where they're looking at you quarter to quarter, is it better to be owned by private equity or are you seeing a difference in the way money managers are looking at it and having more of a long-term view? You know, a piece of it is tied to, yes, not every private equity company takes a long-term. There are many private equity companies that if you miss your <laughs> you miss your numbers for 10 days, you know, you'll yeah. be um, taken back and beaten up. Uh, but I think it's more related to the management of the company, that they are more confident. Say, Look, we're not going to stop doing this. We think electric cars are going to come and we're going to keep on building them. And if we have to lose money for six weeks or six months or six years, uh, we're going to do that. Now, yes, if you're Jeff Bezos, and you own all the stock. You can tell people that, you know, we're going to do food delivery and we're going to lose money for three years on food delivery. But we're going to get into that because I believe it. Most companies don't have that leadership ability to do that. Should compensation be uh, changed? Because a lot of these folks are only CEOs for very short periods of time. All the C-suite people, you know, what's the average tenure of a chief marketing officer, like two years? So everybody is interested in getting getting compensated quickly. Uh, So should the compensation structure be changed? Because a lot of it's not tied to or thinking about long-term. Yes, even the even the equity portion of the compensation is supposed to make you think more about long-term versus what can I make this month, but usually doesn't. I mean, there's a new type of capital being talked about. I'm sure you know about others now, long-term equity where you would buy the stock and you wouldn't be able to trade it on a quarterly basis, but that's a tiny theoretical idea right now. Um, so it's really hard, which is why most companies, if they just let inertia happen, will be sitting in Marty Crane's chair, will be more comfortable doing what they did yesterday, and you know, will only change when the sky is falling, and that's often too late. Marty looks pretty darn comfortable in that chair. How does, how does <laughs> founder's mentality get a company in trouble 
and which you related a good story from Teach for America. So can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. What what um, we had a great conversation with the founder of Teach for America, Wendy Coop, and um, you know she came out of school as a young why not sort of entrepreneur and said, gee, we have all these great graduates and they're all going to banks and they're going to consulting companies. What if we could get these great graduates to go and solve the most important problem in the country, which is how do we educate our kids better? Uh, And so she said, let me take grads from some of the best schools and I'm gonna drop them in inner city schools and have them teach class. And she founded Teach for America. And she was phenomenal at selling the idea. She all of a sudden was able to place thousands of super qualified, super achieving kids in the worst possible schools to help where it mattered the most. And the the company or the organization grew phenomenally. Um, So she was great, like most founders at doing one or two things, coming up with an idea, selling the idea and getting it started. But when you get big, the first thing that happens is complexity sets in and entrepreneurs are good at being agile and making fast decisions, but if there are no more quick fixes, so all of a sudden Wendy ran into a problem that when she dropped all these kids in these inner city schools, they were not having good experiences. They were not being supported. There was no one there to call to help them. There was no coaching, there was no training. And sure enough, what happened to Wendy's business happens to lots of successful businesses. Uh, Kids were getting online and saying, I worked for Teach of America in the New Orleans school system and it was horrendous, don't do this. And they were getting lots of reviews and all of a sudden people weren't signing up and Wendy tried to solve the problem, but it it was required a business model change. And so fortunately she brought a partner in who knew how to change a big aircraft carrier uh, so when you have a founder, and you, you mentioned it with Steve Jobs uh, in a previous conversation, I think we had, yep. you know, he was really good at um, at coming up with ideas, less good at operationalizing. He had a great partner, Tim Cook, who could take his ideas from his head and get them in the market. Question is, and Tim has done a pretty good job of <clears throat> optimizing lots of big businesses, but the question is, you know, will they have enough new ideas to continue this growth? And I don't know. So the founders mentality, founders are great at ideation, great at coming up with ideas, great at making things happen, less good at managing large, complex problems, which is why when they're successful, sometimes they need to be augmented or need different people to come in to get the big aircraft carrier to continue to Go on the ocean. She needed the Tim Cook because uh, right. now Tim Cook, Steve Jobs' second act would have been over very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had students that worked at um, at Apple and said that um, they loved Jobs' vision and his product ideas and how he uh, relayed them to them. But they said he would he was a terrible guy to go and run the company on a day to day basis. But Tim Cook was amazing and had great people skills and was very encouraging. And so I think you, you need that combination, right, to, yeah. to make but that. The other work. thing about the founder's mentality, Mark, is that it has a very important thing that big companies forget how to do 
Because when you're a founder, you're always a little paranoid. Are people still liking to go to, you know, and, and you're always close to the customer. You're always asking people, well, if I made the binder this way, would you buy it? And, and, and that sort of customer intimacy allows them to get the rocket off the launch pad. And when companies get big, you know, the only time you see a customer is maybe when you're in the elevator going out, but most of the time you're in the conference room, I, uh, you know, looking at reports, you know, I, uh, I had a conversation with, uh, uh, there was a conversation with several executives of Facebook. And, but one of the things Facebook was able to do to stay relevant for the past 10 years and grow was they realized that they were getting huge, but they needed to stay agile to survive in technology. So if you were assigned a project that was important, you would get a hall pass that said, I didn't have to go to the food safety briefing that every employee has to go to. I didn't have to go to the finance meeting to do my quarterly. You know, you could get out of meetings because if you go to many executives and big companies, I, I suffer from, and you say, can we have a, a meeting to talk about the future? They'll say, oh, I'm free uh, next Friday between one and two. And then a month from Thursday, I can see you. You know, your world gets complicated. And to be successful, you need to be focused and agile. And so founders stay focused and agile, and big companies often lose that. And the only time they talk to customers is when they say, well, let's do a market study to find out why people in Cleveland aren't buying us anymore. By then, it's too late. That's the biggest complaint. When you meet people who've left large companies like uh, you have and gone to a smaller they said they were getting suffocated uh, by all the meetings, that there were just right. uh, so many meetings that you felt depressed that you didn't get anything done, that you right. look over the course of a year and say, yeah, I drank a I lot of coffee. I was full, but nothing happened. Yeah, right. drank a lot of coffee. What yeah. advi- Here's a question from the audience. What advice do you have for businesses who want to do it differently to the rest? Where to go for funding if you want to be different one and for how long is it okay to ignore the profit to achieve the desirable outcome? Yeah, I, I, you know, I think that um, you know, we all can't be Elon Musk and be able to lose billions of dollars before you make billions of dollars. Uh, I think from you know, if your product and your service idea is good, I think often you can make money sooner than you think, uh, or at least show that we're losing money overall, but in Milwaukee and Peoria, we figured out how to make money. Uh, because I think making money is a good test to whether you have something different that people care about. Because if you if your offer doesn't have difference that people care about, they won't pay for it. And the sooner you find that out, <laughs> the better. So if you have a better mousetrap, um, you should be able to make money quicker than you think. And or you need to find a partner who shares that long-term vision that every day that someday everyone will have a charger in their garage and be comfortable driving an electric. You you mentioned a quote from Bob Pittman who built MTV and Nickelodeon that you that uh, to succeed you have to listen to what your customers need. That seems obvious, right? That you know you would automatically do that. Don't all companies think they are listening to their customers and and are are correcting what they're doing wrong? Yeah, I can't remember a company that's hit and said. We are not customer centric. You know, you look on the wall and the plaque. We're customer centric. Yeah, and there there are many ways to do it. I'm I'm a believer that asking people how they're feeling is not necessarily the best way to tell find out how they're really feeling. 
because people don't want to give you bad news. So if you say, do you like this coffee? And you ask them directly, they'll say, yeah, yeah I like it. Because no one wants to tell you your, your baby is ugly, your coffee. <laughs> so you're better off asking them, how often do you drink the coffee? And tell me a story about how you're feeling when you, you know, you, you're better off watching them and seeing their behavior. And one of the best ways to do that, everyone talks about social media and saying, how do we get something to go viral? Uh, you know, the, the most, to me, the most powerful part of social media is that people share everything online and spending more time listening to and reading how customers are talking about you rather than crafting a survey to ask them how happy you are with your coffee. So it, while it's, it's easy to do, it's easy to say, customer centricity is really hard to do. So get out of your office, watch people. Um, um, and, you know, the best marketers, I always felt that uh, Jerry Seinfeld would have been a great marketer because he had the ability to say, you ever wonder why people eat the top of the muffin and throw it? You know, he was able to look at things and say, that's curious. Why do people do that? You know, and, um, and, and even as his, all of his comedy is based on looking at human behavior and go, you know, that's sort of interesting. Why do, and most marketers don't do that. So um, what are the best practices for looking into the future and figuring out how to position your company for success? You know, that's one of the hardest things to do and most uh, important things to do. So um, uh, everyone wants to know what's around the corner. Uh, and uh, you know, to me, step one is to realize that if you have a if you think that having a new business futures meeting on Thursday afternoon, as I said, is a way to go, you're wrong. You have to be worried about becoming irrelevant every day. You need to wake up every day saying, I'm sure today that people are less likely to buy this than they were yesterday. Uh, so a bit of paranoia helps you stay in touch with the future. The other big one we found when we did the research is getting out of your bubble. You know, part of change doesn't happen right in front of your nose. You know, most companies don't get disrupted by their number one competitor. Coke does not get disrupted by Pepsi. You know, Gillette didn't get disrupted by Schick. So um, getting out and looking at other categories, getting out of your office, not looking at screens all the time, talking to people that are different than you. Uh, one of the you know, companies that struggle to stay relevant or when everyone went to the same school, everyone goes to the same movies, everyone goes to the, um, the same parties, uh, they tend to see the world this way and to see around the corner, you need some peripheral vision. I tell the story often of my first job out of school when I went to an ad agency and I went through all the interviews and they asked me if I knew media strategy and how to do research and I was really prepared and I, I gave them good answers, I thought. And, Finally, I'm with the CEO at his last interview of the day, and he said, Alan, uh, I only have a few more questions for you. Yes, you've been busy all day. I go, great, but you know, you want to know my marketing strategy and marketing, I'm ready, I know. So I said, Alan, what was the last book you read? And tell me what you found interesting about it. And then I want you to tell me about the last show you went to. And what, I, I'm totally not ready for it. And you know, I couldn't think of a book I'd read other than a business book in a, in a couple of months. Um, and afterwards, I asked his name, uh, his name it was Ken Roman. I said, Ken, why did you, he goes, 
Our job at Ogilvy & Mather at that point was to be the eyes and ears of our clients. And I want my front line to be in touch with what's going on in art, in literature, in theater, in entertainment, because if you're involved in those worlds, you're more apt to see what might be around the corner than if you're spending all your day trying to make the perfect cell phone. Um, and so I've taken that to heart in my career. And I think seeing the future is, is less about studying your competition and, and asking customers, you know, what do you want in a bar soap? And more about um, looking out uh, and trying to see the road. You know, when you're teaching a young driver how to drive, you tell them not to look at the curb right in front of them. <laughs> they got to look down the road and see what's coming. Yeah, I, that's why I like going to trade shows and I like hearing early stage companies and I like talking to young people who have a whole different view of things and all the great ideas that they have. Uh, are, are companies becoming too data dependent? I just am finishing a book about Terry Francona uh, when he managed the Red Sox and he said that teams were becoming so data driven that they were basically telling the scouts that they didn't know anything, that all you had to do was look at the data. So, And it turns out you would end up missing quality prospects because it, it's more than just data. Are companies becoming too dependent on data? Well, data is more and more important because you can track everything. And I, it, it has become far more useful than it ever was because you can actually see what people are doing, thinking, and how they're behaving. But like everything else, if it becomes a, if it becomes the only thing you do, it becomes a liability because you have to be able to both look at the data, but then question, why are people doing that? Because the, the, the big challenge with data, people, companies and organizations are swimming in data. The success comes from, you know, reading the tea leaves and saying, so what does that mean that people are shopping more online? Why? Yeah, it, what is happening is, is usually the question that most people can answer. Why is it happening is harder. And what's going to happen next is even harder than that. Yeah, because like you said, everybody has so much data that they're almost all looking at the same thing. It reminds me of people selling you SEO services. Not everybody can be on the uh, homepage or the front page of a search. So what does that mean at the end of the day? I mean, you all of you hired superstar SEO companies, and they all promise you to be on the on the first page, but that's an impossibility. And, you know, it's, it's the, um, I mean, if you look at, I'm not an expert in this for sure, but I think looking at the movie business is always instructive entertainment. If you put the same stars with the same director uh, and the same uh, crew twice, you will get totally different results. <laughs> you know, you need to look at the qualitative as well as the quantitative. People that are totally geeked out in data you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll see the train coming right in front of them, but they won't see what's coming from behind them. And they'll get run over. Is, is there a certain size or stage of uh, life that a company becomes more vulnerable or is it the lack of risk and innovative culture that sinks companies? I think they're vulnerable at the very beginning because oftentimes you have an idea that, um, I'll tell you this quick story. One of my uh, clients from, for many years at Procter & Gamble went over to the a beauty business and became an executive in luxury. And he said, well, the biggest thing he had to get used to was he found marketing at a big beauty and luxury company more like surfing. Uh, he didn't do a lot of surfing. He said, if I was ahead of the wave, I missed it. 
<laughs> no, if I was ahead of the wave, I would get wiped out. And if I was behind the wave, I missed it. I think with many startup companies, you have the right idea, but it's, you're not there yet, and where you haven't nailed it 100%. So at the early phase is really hard. And at the later phase, it's the other problem is we're so focused on building copier, selling film, um, building big department stores. That's what we know how to do. That's what we do. Everyone comes into work every day. That's the mission. And the DNA for the company is all about building big shopping malls. And all of a sudden, no one wants to go to a shopping mall anymore. And it, you, you, can't have, you can't teach old dogs new tricks that easily. So I think the problems on the extremes. You're right. Like the mall people have been seeing this uh, coming where things are changing the way people buy. I mean, more and more people buying a lot. It's just so much easier to do. I even uh, see people who used to like the shop to say, uh, you know what? I'd rather just go online. It's such a big time saver. I get more of my time back um, by doing it. And now the malls are changing over and they're becoming medical facilities you know we're doctors and lawyers and yeah, medical or entertainment or you know it's you know as, as many people and everyone knows the pandemic hasn't really changed trends it's been a massive disruptor which has accelerated so what was already happening people are shopping more online but then maybe they wouldn't shop for certain things all of a sudden they spend a year shopping for everything online and they're not going back to the future <laughs> they're not going to go back and load up the car with 14 bags and line up and check out lines They'll do that for some things. They'll do that if there's entertainment value. They'll, they'll do that if they need to take their phone to the genius bar uh, because they want the interaction with somebody helping them show how to use it. But um, I, you know, I think part of it is, um, is 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 doing that soon enough before you're in the you own a hundred malls and no one wants to buy them anymore. Yeah, right. You, you write about the skills leaders and organizations need to stay relevant. What are they? I think I covered one of them, which is get out of your bubble. <laughs> you know, talk to people that are different than you. Yeah. Go to movies that you wouldn't see. Look it up. You know, don't spend your entire if you're a pope. Don't spend. We talk about it in the in the book a bit. My partner, he said most businesses play too much tennis and not enough golf. And what Joel meant by that, I'm bad at both sports. When you're playing tennis, um, you really need to focus on where your opponent is and you try to hit the ball where they're not. And so you're totally fixated. And most companies are. When I was at Unilever, I spent my day in the lunchroom thinking about Procter & Gamble and Colgate. <laughs> when I was working with Pepsi, it was about Coke. Um, but, you know, disruption is not right in front of you. So you got to open up. So one is opening up the bubble. The other is um, realizing that change is, is hard. And the first time you design an iPhone, it's going to be probably not going to work. And getting it right is hard, takes iteration. And the difference between getting it 100% right and getting it 90% right is often the difference between success and failure. You know, I, I was uh, an early adopter of, for the, your older listeners, of Apple came up with this product called the Newton. I was just going to mention that because I was at a meeting with John Scully when he was demonstrating for a group of 25 of us about the Newton. Go ahead. And I grew up as an Apple young when Apple was a brand I really heard of. Anyway, so I bought a Newton, and it was a great concept. It was sort of a tablet little thing, and you could write on it. But it just didn't work. It didn't recognize my handwriting half the time. The battery would go out. 
it was hard to get my handwriting off to the onto the computer. In other words, they, it was about eighty percent right, seventy percent right, um, and it, and so it didn't matter that he was right completely that we would all be living off things that could do that. It just wasn't right yet, and I think lots of business needs to realize that the success between one idea and the other is not who has the idea. There were many iPads out there before Apple came out with it. It's about getting it all right and getting it all right. Give yourself time, start early, plan for lots of iteration, and don't give up optimizing it until you nail it because the difference between 90% and 100% is often success and failure. For sure. Um, You mentioned about GE having a reinvention trait it appears that even with good intentions, they've made bad choices that haven't worked out. And now they have to sell the best parts of the company just to save the GE name. What is your take and what will it take to turn it around? Yeah, it's easy on the outside. They were a client of of ours and mine for many years, and they were the gold standard. And if you're going to run a B2B business, follow GE. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's one thing. I, I do think that their culture when I worked with them, they believed in people's what they called inner geekiness. They were engineers and they were really quite good at building complex things like turbines and jet engines. But all of a sudden they were making most of their money on Wall Street. <laughs> the finance arm was making, you know, and making money on Wall Street is a different skill set than building jet engines, which is why Goldman Sachs didn't buy Boeing. <laughs> you know, so um, and I think part of it is when you when you get out of your core DNA and you start to make a lot of money and things that you're maybe lucky at, maybe somewhat good at, but you're you really are not attuned to, you get into trouble. So I think one of the big GE problems was, um, you know, they got away from their core DNA. They became more about finance and banking and loaning than about manufacturing. Lots of other things happened as well. You know, they had very, they got very inbred, um, even though they were hiring people and there was a GE way and you had to do the Six Sigma approach. And, you know, they got, you know, the more successful you are, the more processes you put in place. And this is how we do things at GE. Same thing happened at Procter & Gamble. This is a P&G way. This is how P&G writes emails. This is how P&G does market research. And so, you know, they, P&G got very close to trouble 10 years ago, eight years ago. Um, they're still struggling to pivot from a company that knows how to sell to Walmart and Safeway and get to be able to compete with Amazon and go direct to consumer. So I think GE is a great study to look at that a towering strength could also undo you if you're not careful. Yeah, I think when you're so successful, you wonder what people always are saying, why reinvent the wheel or change it? And then they don't realize that you have to constantly look at cannibalizing your processes, everything. Um, to see how you can continually make themselves better. I think that's why somebody like Nick Saban continues to win national championships at Alabama with different sets of people. You know, I, there's another thing we found in the book, which we haven't brought up yet, but I think is very tied to the GE story. Um, it, it's arrogance. The more successful you are, the more arrogant you become. And if you become arrogant, you believe you're always right. We do it our way. And look, it's made millions of dollars, so that's the way we do things. And if you are arrogant in business, it's a very painful lesson when you find out that your confidence is no longer 
justified. So many companies, in fact, the famous story we, we had in the book is BlackBerry. Yes. You know, BlackBerry was the yeah. king of the king. Yeah. Everyone had their own BlackBerry. And they just said, you know, they, they, and when Steve Jobs, you know, said, here's the iPhone, people at BlackBerry said, oh, come on, no one's going to draw on this. You know, they want a business tool. No one's going to use a keyboard that doesn't have real keys. You know, people, are, the president uses a BlackBerry and uh, the head of Goldman Sachs uses a BlackBerry. Don't worry, that's, the Apple thing, that's just a music toy. Forget it. They were so arrogant, they didn't yeah. take, it, they take it seriously. Yeah. Uh, as a marketer, how much stock do you hold in surveys and focus groups when consumers often tell you uh, what you want to hear? And you talked a little bit about that before. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big challenge because um, I, I don't think consumers can tell you what's around the corner. They can tell you um, what what what's what they believe and what they do, and but they can't tell you how they behave. So two things go on there. You know, one is yes, asking them for what's going to happen is often dangerous business. I early in my career, I worked with Procter on the a laundry dish cleaning liquid called Dawn. And when we first came up with Dawn, we asked people, what do you want in a dishwashing liquid? And they said, oh, it has to be good for your hands because that's what was on television. And so we had a liquid that was good at removing grease and they go, ah, I don't know about grease. But once we showed it to them, Dawn became the number one liquid. So I think, you know, part of it is asking the right questions. And the other part is we, we do this now. If you want consumers to tell you what could be, you have to show them. Would you be interested if this happened or this or this? Don't ask them what they want in a soft drink tomorrow because they'll just say something that tastes like Coca-Cola. <laughs> You've got to put prototypes in front of them to go, oh, that's sort of interesting. I never knew you could talk to a phone and have it do that. So if you're gonna ask consumers, go in with stimulus that you know is right or wrong or different, because it's their reaction to the future that will tell you how they're really thinking today. Isn't that why Steve Jobs used to say all those surveys and, and focus groups are crap? You People don't know what they want until you show it to them. Yeah, I'm sure people were saying uh, when they were looking at Xerox copying machines, how happy you are with the copying. I love it. Uh, you know, <laughs> would you consider another brand besides Xerox? No. Now, you didn't ask him what happens if you didn't have to make any copies anymore because that was that was Star Trek. You know, who, what do you mean no copies? Our whole business is about sending statements to customers. You know, they're going to want paper state. Who's going to want to pay their bill online? That's never going to happen. And, you know, Xerox was once flush with lots of money. Why didn't they take advantage of all the great inventions that they had and spin them off as their, as smaller entrepreneurial companies where they would have invested but owned a good... Yeah, vast majority. Part of it is they were making too much money on the copy business, which was an annuity. Because once you bought a copier, yeah, zero. Every year you would get a check from I enjoyed your copier, and you come and service it. So you know they, they were. It was an addictive, powerful business, and so doing new things didn't make financial sense. We were better off selling ten more copiers than launching. You know they invented the mouse. I think as but research. Isn't the, isn't the problem there is that these companies are either run by salespeople who are, again, numbers driven or finance people, but not by people who have an intellectual interest in innovating and like the idea of uh, working on coming out with new products. I think that's what 
uh, drove jobs and others who have been successful in these spaces? The big challenge is, yeah, once a company becomes big, it's really about optimization. Um, In fact, when I was a, a brand manager at Unilever, a lot of the job was not trying to get people to use more of it. It was trying to, how do we make this more profitable? How do we take some ingredients out? How do we make the production line go faster? How do we save money on shipping? Right. You know, even, even though my job was product manager, brand manager, I was the marketing person at Unilever. Half my day was looking for how do we optimize costs and how do we... And so I think if the company is very cost-driven, finance-driven, lots of CFOs are great, they're great at optimizing the machine they're on. But if that machine becomes your father's Oldsmobile, they're cooked. Now, here, here's my last question for you. Big companies have uh, history and resources to mine data to change their futures if they're open and willing. What tools can a startup or a small company avail themselves of that would give them similar insights? Uh, play to your strength. You know, don't try to do the, you know, don't spend all your money on a big survey. You know, go out to your local store, go out, talk to people, watch, observe, um, Um, because big companies are really not good at looking at what's happening right in front of their nose. (laughs) They're looking at data and change happens first on the fringes and uh, qualitatively. And if you can see it ahead of them, you might get the chance to move faster. Is there a leader right now that you, or a couple leaders that you look at and say, these guys really know what they're doing. I mean, they're really forward thinking and they're able to, build these massive companies. Who are the couple that you uh, look at and you say you're really impressed with? Yeah, it's really hard to answer that question because it's always when they're failing in the marketplace, um, you know, they're struggling. But, I, you know, I look at lots of, one of my favorite podcasts is another podcast is called How I Built This on NPR. And if you hear lots of these entrepreneurs, whether it's a person who founded Peloton or uh, SoulCycle or all these companies, they, you know, they've struggled for years until they, but they were really committed to believe that one day you want to do a spin class in your, in your apartment. (laughs) And yes, they got lucky. Everyone had to do it. But part of it was they were successful before the pandemic too. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. I love this book. People should definitely be reading this book and it's so enjoyable uh, to read. So thanks again. And I'll have to get your first book and read that one, right? What, what was the first book you wrote? Simple, which is, yeah, if you can see a chef, you have to, to execute well, you have to keep it simple. I hope people get both of those books. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you everybody for tuning in and um, everybody have a safe weekend. Thanks, Mark. Take care. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.